1: hello and
2: welcome back to close reads here on the close reads podcast network i'm david kern i am joined by heidi white tim mcintosh heidi and tim welcome back to the show
3: thanks david good to be here
2: thank you david we are here to discuss norman mclean's a river runs through it we talked about the first half last week we will talk about you know since this is the way halves work we will talk about the second half this week and the next week we will answer your questions before we do that though i want to remind you how you can get in touch and share your questions with us. You can do that on Facebook, on the Close Reads podcast discussion group. Just search those words in the search bar on Facebook and you will find us if you have not already joined. If you have joined, make sure that you share your questions, post your questions on the thread there. You can also shoot us an email at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com and you can also follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at
0: pods. Hey David. Yes sir. I I was on Overcast, that's how I listen to my podcasts. So I was on overcast the other day and I thought I'm going to search close reads and see how we're doing over there. And we had all five star ratings, but we only had, I think five of them,
2: man, you either. So there's either two, 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 uh, two things going on here. One, people aren't using overcast. Yeah. Or two overcast listeners are, uh, not helping us out here. They're <laughs> not, they are just, I mean, there's five of them, but I mean, there could be seven. Yeah. I mean, if they, come on, the other two of you need to get on the ball and give us a review. I'm just shaking my head. You can't see me, but I'm shaking my head.
3: SMH.
2: (laughs) Um, well, yeah, we are here to, uh, to discuss um River Runs through it. Next, we're gonna talk about Leaf Anger's Peace Like a River. So be prepared for that. That will start uh, I guess the week after next. And that will take us into the new year, at which point we will do a few weeks on the uh the the infamous Catcher in the Rye by uh by Salinger. So that's what's coming up. Uh we well, I was gonna say something. I'm gonna hold off on that though.
3: I'm so curious. We, yeah.
2: Uh, should we Should we publicly say what we 've said on the on social media? We should go ahead and say it on the podcast yeah, why right. not okay. why not all right all right let 's do it so for those of you who are patreon followers, um, we have a little uh special thing coming up in the new year. If you are giving it to five dollar or higher level five dollars a month, then you're going to be able to join us as we discuss crime and punishment. We're going to be discussing that, uh, from the end of January into June, we're going to take our sweet time. It's a very long book, but you know, people have been asking for it, uh, asking for some good Russian dourness, uh, as we, you know, they've been asking for that for a long time. So we figured, you know, we can do dour. So we will, we will do that, but we wanted to be able to also offer, you know, the regular show because not everyone wants to read the same book for six months. It's just not in the cards for everybody. So uh, we will be offering the regular show, but then also for our Patreon listeners, you can you can join the conversation uh, as we as we go through *Crime and Punishment*. And then after that, for the second half of the year, in our in you know in terms of our approach to dower long books, we're going to do some Charles Dickens. After that, for the second half of the year, so uh, if you want to join the conversation there, you can go to Patreon. That's p a t r e o n dot com slash close reads, and you can you can join us. So, like I said, that will be. The end of January will be when we, we will be uh, kicking that off. And we are going to be, at least for us here on the show, we're going to be using the new translation by Michael Katz. Tim, I know we're going to see you this weekend. And I've got your copy sitting on my desk here, ready to pass off to you. I'm happy about that. So I haven't have read mine that translation. right here
3: in my hand.
2: Heidi already so, has hers. So
3: I cannot wait to do this book. It is like this is going to be so fun. I mean, fun. I use the term loosely because it's. It's, you know, darkness. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Someone said, why are you doing this starting in the winter? And I thought to myself, because that's when the new year starts.
3: <laughs> that's right. Because we hate ourselves. <laughs> <That's what.
2: laughs> but that means that we have, uh, we have the Patreon episodes on Crime and Punishment and then Dickens. We also have the regular show. So the eight books that we're going to be covering there for this year. And then we also have, of course, the plays the thing. With lots of good plays uh, there. So we, I think we're starting with, uh, which one are we starting with, Tim? Remind me. On the place thing, As you like it. As you like yes. it. That's right. Yeah. And when do those episodes start? The new year. All right. So the new, with the new year comes resolutions and lots of us have reading resolutions. So we have just, we've just, well, I was going to say checked off the boxes, but that would assume that you have finished your new, you like accomplished your resolutions. We've at least started the list of new year's resolutions related to reading for you. So, you know, the work's done just get reading. Let's basically, you know, get reading, get listening and join the conversation. Pretty easy, right? There's no work involved in that at all. Uh, But speaking of there being no work, let's chat about A River Runs Through It. Because as we know, this is not a job. Um,
3: (laughs) Nice transition.
2: (laughs) (laughs) A little forced, but you know, I was thinking a lot about how I would categorize this book. Like, I mean, there's the obvious bits of of genre, you know, it's kind of a Western book. You can, it's a family book, it's a fishing book, outdoorsman book, whatever. There's all these different genres you can categorize it. But I was reading somewhere where someone was calling it, I I think the word was a tragedy. And it occurred to me that I don't, I got to the end of it and I didn't really think, boy, that's tragic. But then I thought, well, maybe that's the wrong, (laughs) maybe that's the wrong approach approach. Maybe it is a tragedy. So I wanted to ask you, when you get to the end of this book, you've read it multiple times, both of you, do you think that do you think of this as a tragedy? Tim, you've read it the most, you've read it for the longest number of years. Do you think of this as a as a tragedy?
0: I I do, but I share your reluctance to just plop it in that category because I think there's something really for me joyful at the end. Whereas so A tragedy, usually at the end of a tragedy, um, let's say Macbeth, or let's Mm -hmm. say Thomas Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities. There's something like a feeling of having been stripped clean in some way for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And this doesn't feel like that. Like In Macbeth, things have been put in their right order. Uh, and Beth, uh, Macbeth has been deposed and, you know, the right king has been, or an, another better king has been, is going to inherit the throne. And just like the disgustingness of Macbeth's rule, the darkness of his rule has been put away. And then you, you get done. And it, for me, I feel like I've taken a hot scouring bath. But at the end of this book, it's tragic in that we lose Paul. Paul dies under somewhat mysterious circumstances, but we can put it together and there's no thing, there's nothing. It doesn't feel like justice has been served. It feels like um, just a beautiful artist was lost in his prime. And so it feels more mournful than it feels
1: just in, oh gosh, what's the right word? Cathartic. Hmm. Yeah, I agree with that.
3: I think it's tragic, but I'm not sure I would call it a tragedy. Although there are some elements of a literary tragedy and I think we're probably using it in a technical way here when we're saying, you know, kind of the Aristotelian idea of the tragic hero at the center who makes a decision or a series of decisions based on hubris um, or pride or whatever's fatal flaw is and then reaps the consequences of it. And with those consequences comes a reordering of the society, Um, which I do think there are some elements of that, but I agree with Tim that at the end of this story with Paul's, the, the memory at least of Paul's death, which we don't even get to see in real time, in the in the story, there's there's not that sense of restoring of the proper world a reordering of a proper society. Justice has not necessarily been done. It just feels empty to me. It feels more like a memoir than a tragedy. Um, hmm. But there's definitely what tragic. Do you mean it feels that? tragic. It feels like a, a, a memory novel to me. Um yeah that uh kind of along with those allegorical it's unique there's all this allegory in it or a metaphor if you want to if you don't want to call it an allegory at least it's very metaphorical it kind of goes into these mysteries of life um through the metaphor to fishing um but did you did y'all ever watch um what's that zombie show You know what I'm talking about. Walking Dead? Yes, thank you. That's embarrassing. But okay, so Walking Uh, Dead. Is it? When it first came out, Scott and I would always say, it's not about zombies, it's about relationships. And (laughs) that became like a joke to us. So um, whenever we're trying to act smart about TV shows, we always just say, oh, you know, it's not about zombies, it's about relationships. And that's, but there's a little bit of that in this novel, right? It's not about fishing, it's about relationships, but it is about fishing. And so it's all, it's very, layered um whereas a tragedy although it does have those layers has more of a straightforward kind of plot cycle to it
0: Mm. there's something about um i i keep returning to macbeth because it was we recently read it on the plays the thing and it's hopefully a familiar tragedy to most people that listen to this show so much of Act five of Macbeth is spent in pursuit of Macbeth. We see the army coming. We see the army coming. We see Macduff at the gates. We see the fight between Macduff and his opposers. We, you know, we, we, it's all going toward this climactic end, which is, and has to be because of the structure of the play, Macbeth's death. But I just want to read the last paragraph of I want to read the paragraph in which we find out that Paul has been killed and back up from there. Uh, So here's the paragraph. Uh, For me, it's on page 102. A river, though, has so many things to say that it is hard to know what it says to each of us. As we were packing our tackle and fish in the car, Paul repeated, just give me three more years. At the time, I was surprised at the repetition But later I realized that the river somewhere sometime must have told me too that we would receive no such gift. For when the police sergeant early next May wakened me before daybreak, I rose and asked no questions. Together we drove across the Continental Divide and down the length of the Big Blackfoot River over forest floors yellow and sometimes white with glacier lilies to tell my father and mother that my brother had been beaten to death by the butt of a revolver and his body dumped in an alley. I actually want to just read the next paragraph also, mm-hmm. because it's so, it's, it's really sad. My mother turned and went to her bedroom where, in a house full of men and rods and rifles, she had faced most of her great problems alone. She was never to ask me a question about the man she loved most and understood least. Perhaps she knew enough to know that for her, it was enough to have loved him. He was probably the only man in the world who had held her in his arms and leaned back and laughed.
1: Previous to that point, Paul, we don't see Paul
0: fleeing death. In fact, we see just the opposite. We see him pursuing life through this, this incredible gift that he has, this incredible art that he's mastered. And so that's part of the reason why, to me, it, I think so it's not a celebration of a bad man's end. It's a celebration of, oh, how do we describe Paul? Of an imperfect man, an imperfect but beautiful man's End and the last thing that we see him doing when we do this craft and it's absolutely majestic. He's doing something that no one, these other great master fishermen, have never seen before.
2: All right. Well, we had a few uh, technical problems with Tim's line. So we called him on his phone. So he'll sound like he's uh, on the phone, but you know, you talk on the phone. So it should be okay. Um, <laughs> so one thing I was thinking about is how maybe it doesn't feel so much like a tragedy or, or the tragic elements don't weigh on us as much because we're kind of told early on more or less what's going to happen. Like the narrator tells us, he kind of drops these hints throughout the whole thing that Paul's kind of doomed. There's moments like this was the last time we caught the fish and he kind of, you know, this was our last trip together and so on. And so he kind of builds up to it. So that might, that might play into it a little bit um, in terms of, in terms of this sense of the, it's there's a sense of foreboding, but that means that when we get to the end, Mm -hmm. tragedy doesn't sort of weigh on us like, like a heaviness or a sickness or something, the way it does say certain other novels.
0: But David, isn't that true of, I, I don't know that there's a tragedy that doesn't do that. I mean, I think that all of the, all the books that we'd point to, we'd say that's a straight up tragedy. No chaser, you know, um, I think we would say, boy, we saw the end coming. We saw the forest of Dunsinane, you know, arriving to Macbeth's castle. I I think there are little things. So I'm I'm not sure that that's the thing that makes it not square up with feeling like a tragedy, meaning a river runs through. It seems a little bit different. And I'm not sure if it's because we were well-prepared. I feel like in every great tragedy, we're well, I feel like in the, the books that we would point to and say, yeah, that's a tragedy. We are well-prepared for the demise
1: of the antagonist.
0: Or the protagonist.
2: Is that, is there a fine line though, between say, um, foreshadowing and the fact that this narrator specifically comes right out and tells us he's go, He's not going to make it. Are you,
3: well, I think in, a true tragedy something like Macbeth um there's something inherently flawed within the trajectory of the character's development that that communicates the world although you might have a love for the character um that the world is better off without it that 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 the center cannot hold with this of the world of the story without this character being removed from the society that they must be, but that's not the way it is in a river runs through it. There's something, I mean, there's something very deeply flawed in Paul, but there's also something very deeply flawed in Neil. And it's almost the same thing just manifested differently. And yet Neil Goes on and lives, and Paul doesn't. So there is this question yeah. of why, though, and that is not the question of a tragedy. It's very clear throughout a tragedy why this character has to go, but not in this book. Um, and so yes. it's tragic. Yes. It's tragic, but it's not technically
1: a tragedy. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm thinking about. Um the comparison between Neil and Paul,
0: I mean, it is <laughs> by the end of the book, i mean I just I don't find much of anything compelling about Neil, and I don't think I'm supposed to find anything compelling about Neil. He just he sucks everyone's time, he is ignorant of the incredible gift that. Paul has. He just doesn't even notice. He's too busy falling asleep with rawhide and like getting sun poisoned. I mean, he just he doesn't have eyes to see, and it's partly because he
1: has not trained himself to see. And yes, Heidi, at the end, Paul dies. Right. Paul, the great master, just a beautiful. I mean, just like a a living artwork, he dies,
0: and Neil goes back to college with his two sweaters and kind of doesn't know the difference, doesn't have any idea about what he's missed or missing. And it's not put right, unlike most tragedies, it's not put right at the end of um, Oedipus Rex. We see the tragedy coming. We see the fall of the great king. We see the errors in him. And at the conclusion, the king is deposed. He throws himself out of the kingdom and order is restored. Presumably the great plague leaves the city and things are are well again. It's not that way in this book. It just feels like there is a, a gap in this family. And the gap cannot be explained, and it feels like it's nothing but loss. Hmm. But the, the thing that feels to me that's a little bit redemptive about it is the is the art of Paul's life. It's not that society is put in its right order again, but there is something about his life, like his father says at the end, but it's probably worth reading that he was beautiful, hmm. and there's a memory of that that that. that in some ways just cast a kind of silver light over the entire book for me.
3: I completely agree with that, Tim. And I I think you know, we all talk about how much we love this book. I love this I love the end of this story because it is it doesn't tie everything up in a neat little bow. There's just this dot dot dot, this dun 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 of mystery at the end. Um very very human but but at the same time the whole book with this fishing metaphor explores the fact that life is mysterious that life is hard that life has depths to it that the best we can do is is send out strands of, uh, lures to try to connect some way with the depth, uh, but that we can't ever mm. really master it, you know? And so to your point about reading it, I do want to read a little bit on my book. It's on page 103 and I'm going to read two paragraphs. Um, it's the
0: same section I bet that I was going to read. Probably it.
3: because it's just so it's
0: great. Yeah. So
3: beautiful. Um, starting with once my father, once my father came back with another question, Do you think I could have helped him? He asked. Even if I might have thought longer, I would have made the same answer. Do you think I could have helped him? I answered. I I just want to pause because that's so beautiful. That whole, he answers Mm -hmm. the question with a question and calls it an answer. And that's human life. Like Mm. that is human life. We stood waiting in deference to each other. How can a question be answered that asks a lifetime of questions? After a long time, he came with something he must have wanted to ask from the first. Do you think it was just a stick up and foolishly he tried to fight his way out? You know what I mean? That it wasn't connected with anything in his past? The police don't know, I said. But do you? He asked, and I felt the implication. I've said I've told you all I know. If you push me far enough, All I really know is that he was a fine fisherman. You know more than that, my father said. He was beautiful. Yes, I said. He was beautiful. He should have been. You taught him. My father looked at me for a long time. He just looked at me. So this was the last he and I ever said to each other about Paul's death. That is maybe one of the most perfect pages of writing I've ever read in my entire life. Mm. Everything mm. about that is perfect. Every word says something, multiple layers. And that, this is to what, to your point about Paul's beauty, really what the the eulogy, the memory that Norman Maclean holds about his brother that is redemptive is that he was a fine fisherman. Because...
1: Mm-hmm.
3: There's, because of all that fishing represents in the story and because of this connection between mystery and nature and art and faith, that all of that goes to Paul out there fishing. And that's why Neil is different from Paul, right? Because Neil didn't bother to do it. But Paul was out there fishing his entire life. And that's the thing we remember about Mm -hmm. him, all that that represents in the story. And that's why even though his death feels so sad and there's so much grief to it it's also it 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 is not a nihilistic story it's not Mm -mm. there's a redemption to it that you can't put into words but that's the whole story right there's this these layers of mystery that you can't say it because it belongs in a story
2: well it takes the ending takes us back to the beginning right because as we talked about last week Mm. it begins with in our family which is important. In our family, there was no clear line between religion and fly fishing. We lived at the junction of the great trout rivers in Western Montana. And our father was a Presbyterian minister and a fly fisherman who tied his own flies and taught others. That takes us back to what you just read, right? If you push me far enough, all I really know is that he was a fine fisherman. And we're told at the beginning that there's no clear line between religion and fishing. And so when he says, all that I really know is he was a fine fisherman, he's, he's, you know, imp- implicitly the book is, sa- he's saying something about You know, I don't know if he would say that he's a religious man, but he's saying something about, you know, his brother's soul when he says that. And then it says he was yes, he was beautiful. He should have been. You taught him. That takes us back there again, right? Our father was a fly fisherman who tied his own flies and taught others. Um so so the connections between the beginning and the end are really interesting because they tell us so much about um what this what is really this book is really about. Um, what, what the book is really trying to say. And Tim, I wanted to ask you something. You've read this book a lot. Mm-hmm. This, is, this yeah. might seem like a question that's not related, but I think it's very related. Um, why, why is this book the length that it is? Why not a novel? Why not give us more of you know, the scene where Paul... Dies? Why not give us more of his life? Why not give us, you know, more of these relationships and these connections? Why not give us more of Neil later? Why not make this this kind of? There's a there's a there's enough character here. There's enough theme here, and there's enough story here to give us a sort of yeah. At least uh, like like kind of like a piece like a River Style book or or a Wendell Berry book where you know he could get 250 pages of a great novel out of this. And we obviously know he's got the chops for it. So why does why do you think he made the choice to keep it this length, around
1: 100 pages, and, and, and just a novella? I think that the absence, or the absences within the tale, are like
0: so bright that I think that if the book was two hundred pages, it would kind of threaten to diminish the brightness of those absences. Meaning, on the next page after what Heidi read, so much, so much of what Heidi read is about.
1: These two men who loved Paul, not understanding him. And then it's followed up by
0: once my father asked me a series of questions that suddenly made me wonder whether I understood even my father, whom I felt closer to than any man I have ever known. I just think there's so much of this story is about
1: um, loving someone. That you don't really understand or loving
0: something that you don't even really understand, and I think that the brevity of this book contributes toward that that mysterious relationship of having affection for something and at the same time recognizing it is so big and so beyond me and of such a depth that I can't, though, though I love it, I don't really understand it. And I think the brevity contributes to that.
3: Hmm. Right. I agree. And I think also one of the big questions of this story that we haven't yet talked about um, is, and he never directly addresses, is this. Is there something that Paul understood about life that we we don't? Is there something about him that um, because he's the, the master of the art that's at the center of the story, and everybody watches him with awe so there is this question throughout the story of maybe there's something that Paul got or understood or engaged in about life and being human that we're missing and he hmm. doesn't seem to know what that is you know he just seems to be asking the question like it's kind of threaded throughout the story and left unanswered um, you, you mean
0: norman doesn't understand or yes, you mean paul I himself mean, understand?
1: No. well
3: maybe paul but i met norman um because paul mm-hmm. we, we've talked about paul as norman does norman the narrator um and the characters in the story talk about his personal life as though it's has this flaw within it which you know we do not endorse the things that that paul is doing (laughs) that's not what i'm saying but all but then on the other side his art he's the master of right and then there's this gap between those two things and and the, the story kind of dwells in the gap there and the junctions, uh, but, but the junctions are so key to the story. They're brought up from the very beginning. Uh, fly fishing and religion are connected. So the implication then is if you are a master of fly fishing and, and, and all that that entails, that somehow you have some kind of connection to faith, um, to God, that is worth exploring, and I think that's part of the exploration of the novel, and yet it remains unanswered, and I think the brevity of the story contributes to kind of the dot, dot, dot in the reader's mind of, wow, maybe there's something Paul actually did understand um, that we don't get about life, about being human, about faith, about art, about
1: nature. Can I speculate about that for a second, Heidi? it seems like the opening of this book I'm going to read a passage and then I'm going to speculate on it (laughs)
0: Um, so for me it's page three Uh, the last full paragraph begins well until man is redeemed you will always take a fly
1: rod too far back just as by the way having cast a fly rod many times I cannot tell you how true
0: that statement is like the, if you are learning to fly cast, the thing that you want to do with everything, every fiber of your being is like to just like rip the line as far back as you can go. And every time you do that, you end up with a snarl that is ungodly. So I just want to say this statement is true. Well, until man is redeemed, he will always take a fly rod too far back, just as natural man always overswings with an axe or golf club and loses all of his power somewhere in the air. Only with a rod, it's worse because the fly often comes back, comes so far back it gets caught in the brush or a rock. When my father said it was an art that that ended at 2 o'clock, he often added closer to 12 than to 2, meaning that the rod should be taken back only slightly farther than overhead, straight overhead, being 12 o'clock. Then, since it is natural for a man to try to attain power without recovering grace, he whips the line back and forth, making it whistle each way, and sometimes even snapping off the fly from the leader. But the power that was going to transport the little fly across the river somehow gets diverted into the building of a bird's nest of line, leader, and fly that falls out of the air into the water about ten feet in front of the fisherman. If though so, he pictures the round trip of the line, transparent leader, and the fly from the time, to- and the fly from the time they leave the water until they return they're easier to cast. They naturally come off as a water-heavy line first and in front and the light-transparent lighter and fly trailing behind. But as they pass overhead, they have a little bit of time So the light-transparent lighter. Okay. All of this is very specific direction. It's mathematical direction. It is about the art of fly casting, which is indeed a difficult art. The book... Is I, I think this is part of my speculation. We have a Presbyterian minister who knows the way of redemption, that grace and salvation come through God's specific redemption through 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 Jesus, right? But so much of this book is about not the book of grace, not the book of in, in Presbyterian language, not special revelation. But general revelation, huh. It's about the book of nature. And I think what I see going on is that Paul understood the book of nature. He really understood the book of nature. He did not understand the book of grace. He did not understand the special revelation of God. He at least shows no indication that he did. But there's something about what Paul understood about nature and about the transformative power of his craft that even his father, who spent his life teaching the special revelation of God, somehow could see that Paul understood the, the general revelation of God in a way that nobody else that he knew understood it.
1: Hmm. So I think, in, I think this, the theology of this book is it's it's a very how do I say it I do think there is a dichotomy between redemption by grace and
0: redemption through nature. And I think that Paul understood the latter without understanding the former
3: maybe so on page forty two, which I think tim you and i have the same version but david has a different one so sorry david um there's this speaks to what you're saying within the metaphor of fishing and this is when they first take neil out and neil's hungover from his first night at the bar um and he's sitting with his hills brother coffee can which is a really cool little touch neil is and then um The brothers go, you know, Paul and Norman go out and find holes of their own. And um, Norman can't, uh, he's not catching any because he's not willing to lose his flies. Um, there because the fish are under the willows and he knows that if he tries Mm. to fish under there, that he's going to lose some flies. And so he keeps fishing in the sunny open water and not catching it. And Paul chastises him for it, says, if you want to catch fish, you have to go where the fish are. You have to be willing to go into the depths where the bottom Mm. feeders are right. And so to your point, he, Paul has this ability to go into the deep water, to go into mm. where the act, where the dwellers under the surface are. Like he will go, he's willing to lose his flies. He's, he's yeah. fine with that because he's out there to go under the surface. And over and over again, we see Norman unwilling to engage with those parts of his brother and of himself that are under the surface. He doesn't want to know about Paul's addiction. He doesn't want to know what the, the things that are happening. So he buries his head. He wants the sunny open water, but Paul will go there to, and engage in the mystery
1: to get to the depths. Hmm. And so I do think that yeah. the
3: story is saying there's something about Paul that there is the connection between the fallen nature of the world and the darkness lurking under the waters that Paul engages in and it, it causes his death. And, and so again, even to the readers, there's this great mystery to it. It's unresolved. It's, Mm -hmm. it's answering the question with a question.
1: As a side note, I think it's fascinating that during the
0: time that these events happened, Norman does not understand. But the story is told by Norman, as an older man who's been presumably dwelling on this his entire life. And I think that he, by the end of his life, has come to a much greater understanding of his brother and what his and, like, and his brother's pursuit of those depths than he understood when he was a younger man during the time of Paul's death, mm. and I think the story that we just read is that greater understanding. He 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 in a way he came to understand Paul better by dwelling on the mystery of him for all of those years after his death. He just kept dwelling on him and wondering about him.
1: And I think this story is his way of trying to give an account of his brother's life. Right. The beautiful, the beautiful. And that's not the, um, just the tragic aspects of it, but the real fullness of what his brother dedicated his life to
3: right that all he really knows about him is that he's a fine fisherman right like and all that fishing means within the story that's a very meaningful like and the most meaningful benediction that you can give to paul based on so many of the things that we've talked about that to be a fine fisherman means you you are willing to lose flies to go under the willows to catch the fish that there's this grace that this this intersection this junction of nature and grace and power that um that characterizes paul on the river um and so i think the question that i keep having about paul is is paul a man divided is he a mm. man with this chasm between the Paul on the river and the Paul who's living this debauched life, or is he a unified man that they're both the same, right? That that's, that, that, that's the harmony. Um, and so that's,
1: Uh, say
0: more, say more about that, Heidi. How might they be the kind of the man who got into much trouble and the man on the river? How might they be united?
3: Well, they might not. They might. It might be that he's a divided man, as we all are divided people. Um, Well,
1: this
2: concept uh, of division is obviously something that the book is
3: goes on and on about. The the great divide and the junctures, and a river itself. Juncture, junctions. A river itself is a divide, and a river runs through it. That's the title. That's the point. Like that's the thesis that. so, it's hard to put into words because that's the whole story. I think that's the question of the story. I think that's the question that Norman the narrator continues to ask about his brother is was there is it the is it that the redeemed Paul was the Paul on the river, and the fallen Paul is the one living this debauched life, or is it that mm-hmm. the debauched Paul is the same as the paul on the river that that he's engaging in the depths of human existence he's the one being honest about it and everybody else is just fishing yeah. in the shallow water
0: I, I think about the painter caravaggio who oh my goodness i mean i just think caravaggio's paintings mm-hmm. are absolutely simply they just leap off the canvas mm-hmm. in a way that maybe rembrandt is the same way but very few artists to me have this sort of like That's incandes- that Caravaggio's do. And so many of them have biblical subject matter. He is preoccupied with spiritual things. And the life that he was living was insane. He was just, he was murderous. And in many ways, he was vile. And it would be really, it's tempting to separate Caravaggio into two men the one full of great spiritual longings and the one full of debauchery and say they're kind of two different men. And yeah, yeah, perhaps so. But I just don't know that you, that Caravaggio could have produced, this is is a hard thing to say. It's a hard thing to accept. I don't know that you could accept that Caravaggio who produced those incredible paintings. um, I don't think he's a different man than the man who, was murderous and vile and debauched. I think they're the same. Right. I think they're the same men. Clearly, there's a ravine somewhere in him. And I think clearly there's a ravine somewhere in Paul. But I also think, to your point, Heidi, I think the great mystery about Paul's character is whether or not he's like the things that he did on stage sunday night were of the same tapestry
1: as the things that he did on saturday morning when he was on the river right
3: Hmm. right well that seems to be the contemplation of the book is that within every human soul a river runs through it there is this ribbon of divide and mystery that runs through every human soul and every human life and every complex web of human relationships. And, and so engage the mystery, like be there, be in the
1: river.
2: I wanted to bring up the ending in the book, the the final conversation he has with his father, because I think it, I don't want to say it summarizes, but it's definitely about what some of these things that you're talking about the last page or so for, in my edition, it's 118, but it's, you know, just look, look at the end. There's a paragraph that says indirectly though he was present in many of our conversations. You guys see that? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I'm going to read the next sentence and then down a little bit. Once, for instance, my father asked me a series of questions that suddenly made me wonder whether I understood even my father, whom I felt closer to than any man I have ever known. You like to tell true stories, don't you? He asked, and I answered, yes, I like to tell stories that are true. Then he asked, after you have finished your true stories, sometime, why don't you make up a story and the people to go with it? Only then will you understand what happened and why. It is those we live with and love and should know who elude us. Now, nearly all those I loved and did not understand when I was young are dead, but I still reach out to them. Of course, now I am now I am too old to be much of a fisherman, and now of course I usually fish the big waters alone, although some friends think I shouldn't. Like many fly fishermen in western Montana, where the summer days are almost arctic in length, I often do not start fishing until the cool of the evening. Then in the Arctic half light of the canyon, all existence fades to a being with my soul and memories and the sounds of the big Blackfoot River and a four count rhythm, and that a hope and the hope that a fish will rise. Eventually all things merge into one and a river runs through it. The river was cut by the world's great flood and runs over rocks from the basement of time. On some of the rocks are timeless raindrops. Under the rocks are the words and some of the words are theirs. And then the famous final line, I am haunted by waters, which we can talk about in a minute. But I want to talk about something that you, I want I wanted to bring this up because of what you were just talking about, Heidi. He, there's these constant, References in this section to the idea that people that we don't really know people, it, it begin The first bit that I said was my father asked me a series of questions that made me wonder where, whether I understood him. So he's saying I felt the closer to him than any other man I've ever known. And yet here in this moment, I felt like I didn't know him. And earlier in the book, there's this bit where after they bring Neil back, he's talking to his wife and they have this connection or they have this conversation, but let's not lose connection, right? They, of, mm-hmm. they, have, they, have mm-hmm. they kind of reset themselves. They reset their relationship. And when it seems like Neil is coming between them, when this sort of mini tragedy, well, I guess it's not a mini tragedy, but when this, this tragic moment that reveals, you know, Neil's true colors, no pun intended. Um, when that happens, <laughs> when that happens, they stop...
0: His true color was red.
2: Exactly. They stop... Uh, did he have a tail but they stop and they um they make sure that they're connected right and so there's this for 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 neil or not for neil for our narrator for norman there's this constant pursuit of this sort of connection that's something of of, uh, howard's end in this but then uh, his father asks him these questions that and it's the questions themselves that throw norman into this sense of Like like Maybe he doesn't know his father like he thinks. And the way that he writes this is really interesting because a lot of the dialogue is in blocks of text, right? Um, And he asks these series of questions. Then he says, why don't you make up a story and the people to go with it? But then the next two lines almost look like a dialogue. But I think they're all coming from the father, right? But it could be that Norman is responding with only then will you understand what happened and why. And the father's responding to him next. So he separates out what is, has been throughout most of the book, blocks of dialogue. Like when one person speaks, it's a larger block. But then he said, he breaks it apart as if it's multiple different people talking. And I think that almost is a objective correlative for the, you know, a, a formal representation of the way connection is so difficult. Like that, that he, he talks about... Um, it, his father says it is those we love, we live with and love and should know who elude us. And you were talking earlier about how Paul would go out and like the challenge of of fishing, even when you don't catch anything was, was the point of it for him or at least part of it. We always know he was pretty competitive, but I got to thinking about how he was fishing for that. You know, they're always fishing for that elusive giant fish, right? The biggest fish. and And hmm. the idea that the fish are elusive is one of the crucial themes in the whole book. And that's the challenge. That's the thing they're always after. And it's what Neil's not willing to sort of pursue. But then here at the end, his father says that it's these people who we love the most and live with that are elusive, just like those big fish. And so it seems like Paul here is being compared to the fish who hides, you know, on the edge of the shore, who hides in the big rocks and who makes it difficult to catch. And so just as much as he is a great fisher, fisherman, a great skilled artist, he is also the, the fish who hides. Um, who, who do you look at and you you see under the water and you know, they talk a lot about how you see his rainbow stripes under the water and there's this brilliant color that happens and he, it's mesmerizing and yeah, you can't, you can't catch him. And so he's both the fisherman and the fish at the same time, which, which I think is a really profound way of, of expressing what you're talking about there, Heidi, and the way and then how these things kind of merge together. And it like creates this extra level of hauntedness because if the brother is both the fisherman who's waiting in the water trying to fish, but he's also the fish that's under the water, then it adds a deeper level of haunted, of why he might, a deeper sense of why he might be haunted by the waters because his brother's under there with the words that they were talking about earlier, right? It's the, when they're watching him fish, when, when, the, when he and his father are watching Paul fish, they talk about, um, what is it that he says? About the word being under the water?
1: Yes. Um, yeah, but under the
3: rocks are the words.
2: Yeah, under the rocks are the words. And so under the rocks are the words and under the rocks are Paul and there's this everything flowing together into one, as he says. So I'm kind of wondering at this point, but I... With, this ending, you know what he says here about the fish being elusive and all that was sparked by or brought up in my my memory by what you were just saying there, Heidi. And there is this elusiveness to people. Like, how do you really know? You can't really know somebody. And like the right. constant pursuit of connection takes a lot of work, as you said.
1: Yeah, it's true.
3: I think that's beautiful what you just said. This multiple layers of meaning within the language, within the images within the relationships, it's, it's like an invitation to engage with those divided spaces in our lives. But I think the redemptive image in that is that the river is um, full of life right it's not like a barren chasm it's not empty there's something that fills that divided space within our souls and with between humans he talks about how the river becomes one right and i think that that um, speaks to what you were just saying david about uh, the fluidity of the images and the symbols within this story um that when he's talking about Paul, he's also talking about himself. He's also talking about his relationship with his wife. He's also talking about fishing itself. Like there's, everything becomes one and a river runs through it. The mystery runs through it. The division, the divide, but the divide is filled with something and we can engage in that river. We can be in the river together. We can, um, we can connect with each other. Um, but. To your point, there's still an elusiveness and mystery to it um that we can explore in our own individual ways and I love the little sweet moments he has with his wife throughout the story um I think that that's Even the really, tense ones are kind of sweet <laughs> they are they are they love each other like there's that God is love, and he's talking about his family and so um there is an exclusivity to that. But there's also kind of a beauty to it that there's boundaries, secure boundaries within around this love. No one's stepping outside of it, even though there's loss and grief to it. There's still these connection points. Um again, it's not a nihilistic story about how life is meaningless and full of despair. Like it, it, it is a story about love.
1: Hmm. I
2: I love how I love that moment where they bring in Neil back and and the women are all standing there and he's just kind of fed up and he's like, get out of my way. And they bring him in and then she says it to him right back, like a couple of minutes ago, get out of my way. (laughs) Yeah. They each get a chance to say it to each other. And then after that, they, they reconnect. There's something very, uh, yeah, right. Real about that.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Right.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) Sometimes you, sometimes you both kind of, say get out of my way for a second and then you come right back. I, I mean, I love the way he physically even describes that. They're standing in his... These women are standing in Paul and, and his way as they're bringing Neil in. And they say get out of the way. And the women kind of part ways like almost like the river. And they kind of walk between the women and bring Neil in almost like the river does. And then and then his wife says to him, get out of my way. And she goes and does something to help him out. But then they come back together. And just the, the there's a stagedness to that in a way that's sort of... I don't mean staged in a negative sense. I mean, there's a sort of... There's a sort of cinematic theatrical uh, staging to the way... It's it's like a, there's a to it.
0: dramatic... There's a dramatic symmetry to it. Mm, yeah. I agree. Maybe.
3: Well, and like a militant healing that the women bring to this story. That's like, <laughs> you're going to take my brother fishing.
1: Right? Like <laughs> I there's... love that. I love <laughs> it's that. going to work.
0: A militant <laughs> healing. Yes. I love but that. They
3: have this medical presence right there. They're healers, but they are strong women and they... F- they force connection upon the men who don't know how to connect with each other, and that there is something mm. very healing about that. Um,
1: mm.
3: And so, anyway.
2: Well, okay. So, so the, the, the books constantly uh, are constantly touching on the idea that truly knowing another person is very difficult, um, particularly the ones you love the most, because in some ways, probably your love keeps you from seeing them terribly clearly. But then at the end, it's all about everything merging into one. Right. I mean, that's this big theme at the end of the book, all things merge into one. And he says, all existence fades to a being with my soul. Um, so that in a way, in a sense, there's sort of an irony in that, in that this, in this idea that throughout the whole book, knowing someone or being unified with someone or understanding someone is, is, uh, is fading, um, is, and difficult. Um, and yet at the end of the book, all things merge into one. So I want to touch on that quickly. How do I know you got to go. Um, do you want to say something about this and then Tim and I can sign off? Or do you have no time at all?
3: Well, I can always send a text and say, I'm running late to teach my class. So. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> um i, I do want to say, say something, something and then go teach but i forgot the topic so remind me of the topic well, <laughs> sure something to say. No,
2: i was just talking about how um the book through my, much of the book it's about this idea that connection is difficult but then at the end the theme is all things merge into one right. so there's a bit of irony there so how do you sort of reconcile those those in your own right. your own there's, mind? A, there's you- a
3: paradox to it and i i i think what what is it that he says to his wife that they say to each other get out of my way (laughs) right there's yes and that's actually important and relevant um but there's something else what do they say we're not gonna lose each other is Mm. that the phrase we're not gonna
2: lose sight i think lose sight of each other something like we're not um. right
3: i think part of the the answer to the the connection i've been thinking a lot about this um that, that those the paradox of those things not only in the story but really in, in real life. That's true about my life. I mean, raise your hand if you feel fully known, even by the person who you're the most intimate with, right? Like probably no one's raising their hand. And, um, and I think some of it is the idea that we're all fishing at the same river, right? That, that Paul and Norman, even, you know, even, even Neil and old Rawhide are they're in the river. They're just exposed to the sun and that um, damages them. But mm. this, this idea that part of, part of human connection is knowing, I do have to kind of fish alone, but we're in the same river. And
2: yeah, I think it's important that he's fishing alone at the end of the book.
3: It is important that he's fishing alone and people tell him not to, but he does anyway, because in some ways he's, he's carrying on what Paul has done. That's how they were raised. They were raised to be beautiful and to be beautiful means to engage the paradox between nature and grace through this thin line that is your fishing line. Mm. And so, and I, and I think that also the most enduring relationship that he speaks of in the novel is his wife that they they miss each other at the beginning, they mad at each other, and um and then they say they agree to never lose sight of each other and he he says, and we never have, and I still haven't lost sight of her, and she's gone, yeah, right they, so that mm. and and I think that matters like i'll I'll say for me that matters to know that there are people fishing in the same river that are like. I don't understand. Here I am.
2: Yeah. You know, I think that you mentioned um Neil and Rawhide. They're they're even them there in the river but they're kind of uh in a in a way like um <laughs> uh,
3: anesthetizing themselves. Yeah, or or <laughs> um
2: yeah, like what's the opposite of sanctifying something
3: <laughs> right defiling it
2: yeah 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 they're like defiling the river and i think the one thing the book is this constant idea about oneness right like unity like things merging together and that's why the the husband and wife relationships the two ones we have here are very important they're not talked about a lot but thematically they're really rich because it's this concept of husband and wife becoming one right and in rawhide and neil we have this sort of like you know in a way it's sort of this um Lowbrow comedy that gets dropped into the book, but I think it's there because it's it's meant to to illustrate, you know, it's meant to, you know, there, there's kids listening, right? So in theory, so they're 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 engaging in an action that mm-hmm. is meant to bring people together as one, right? Like through marriage, right. but they're <laughs> but they're they're doing that. In so discreet, the way that
0: it's discreet, David. I love it.
2: They're doing that in a way that is defiling. That yes. concept of oneness, right, and that's why, like, they're basically just like animals in the in the dirt, right? Right. Um, yeah. And so right. that that's very that to me that the, the, their their action of defilement is a kind of a lowbrow, humorous bit in the middle of the book that is, very, but it speaks very profoundly to the themes in this book, and the book is not the same without it. There, you know, and it, and, and they have to be, you know, the way they Paul and and Norman talk about them, they talk about them. You know they call them. Uh, you know I think they even use the word bastard, right? Like they call them very cruel things. They talk about them in a cruel way. They look down on them, and that has to be there for that theme to to be as richly explored. I think um, for the book at the end to be able to actually come and say all things merge into one, that theme has to be there, and there has to be a some that there has to be a moment where it gets defiled for it to be more meaningful. If that makes sense.
3: Agreed. Agreed. I gotta
2: go. Oh, yeah, you guys. gotta go. Tim and I will Sorry. finish up. here.
3: I'm so sad. I'm gonna well, have you to did. go fishing alone. <laughs> <laughs> have a great class, Heidi. Yeah, Thanks, guys. All right,
2: bye. All right, Tim, let's finish this conversation up then. Um, is there anything you wanna any final thoughts you want to add? We've been going for over an hour, so I think we're we're okay to kind of kind of settle up here. We've got next week to answer questions as well. Do you wanna touch on anything about this ending? Because Heidi and I we got a chance too, but you you've you've been uh, patiently waiting the last 10 or 15 minutes. I
0: actually have a question and I'm going to save it for the Q and a it's for you and Heidi. It's a question about the end of the book. And I, as many times, every time I read this book, I always ask myself what happened. And I don't know if I should like tease the question now, like what happened in the book and ask it. And like, yeah, there's a specific thing, a specific description of something that happened. It's not a thematic thing. It's an event that's not. He doesn't really. We don't know the reason why this event happened. I'm wondering if I should ask you now, and then we can kind of like pick it up next Maybe week, or if I should just save the it. question.
2: You could ask it, but we won't answer it this week and tease it for the next episode. Okay, next week. Okay, let's do that on close eats. Um, <laughs> it's like the trailer for the next episode.
0: Right. Okay, so for me, here's the trailer, one two in my book.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So we're right at the end. He's right? talking to his father. Right at the end, he almost reached the door, this is his father, and he turned back for reassurance. Are you sure that the bones in his hand were broken, he asked. And I repeated, nearly all the bones in his hand were broken. In which hand, he asked. In his right hand, I answered. So. We don't know how all of the bones were broken. Like we, we understand that Paul was killed by these men that he was indebted to, but we don't know exactly how. And his father makes a guess later on in the book, like maybe he was ambushed and he came out fighting. But we don't know the answer. And I have always wanted to know. Why were all of the bones in his right hand broken? I have a couple of guesses, but I think they have to remain guesses because I don't think the text tells us. So I'm curious what you and Heidi think those two, what what, what you and Heidi think the reason might be that all of the bones in his right hand were broken.
2: Um, I I, I I think that the book at least implies why, but I think there's a reason why it doesn't come right out and say it. Um, which I think would be fun yeah. to about too, like what's his, I think he's making a, an interesting authorial choice there. So, all right. Well, that's a good place. To yeah. Go. I think so too. Tim, uh, this is a, it's a great book. Thanks for uh, pushing all this time for it. Uh, I know it's one of your heart books. So oh,
0: absolutely. I see a little bit. Why? Thanks for, thanks for, oh man. <laughs> every time, every time I finished it and I'm just so full, it's just such a
2: rich book. So would you say yeah. it's, it's, um, like say you had a Mount Rushmore is it of heart books? Is it up, is it on the Mount Rushmore? Or is it in a top 10 or where do you kind of
1: place yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely top 10. Maybe it's top five. And uh, gosh, I don't know what else I would
0: put. It'd, it'd be a fun list to put together books that are both really good, but, but they also just kind of like touch us in these really deep ways. It's definitely in Rushmore.
2: I really like your, this idea that you, created of a heart book, because when we talk about, you know, what are your favorite books? I think there's often this, this inclination to try to figure out, well, what are my favorite books that are just that everyone knows are universally great, but the heart book kind of allows you to say, what are the books that just mean a lot to me? You know, it kind of gives you the freedom. Yes, absolutely. The books that I turn to for comfort or for encouragement or for a challenge or, you know, they speak, they just are the books that are, they're mine, you know, and it's a little bit of a different yeah, thing. What right. are your favorite books or what are the, what are because when you say favorite books, there is, there is an inclination to say, well, okay, Anna Karenina. I mean, that could be your hard book, but you know, or, or Huckleberry Finn or Hamlet or something, because they're universally beloved and, and I like them. Right. But it's a little bit of a different question yeah. So I like the, I like. Uh, it is a little bit of a
0: different question we're reading another one of my heart books this season on close reads. We're doing the sun also rises. Yeah. Which I have a feeling that when we get to it, I'm there are going to be a lot of people that are saying, they're going to say, this is one of your heart books. And I will come Guns ready million. to offer an <laughs> apologia.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, those are the best shows sometimes when, uh, when, when one person, I like, think so a little bit of conflict is good, right? Like, like
0: Sarah Jane, really loves another one of the books that we're doing this season, Frankenstein. I can barely read that book. (laughs) It drives me crazy. So I think it might, you and I, David talked about like, maybe I can come on and issue my complaints, you know, about the book and by the end of the book, um, Maybe they'll have been answered.
2: Yeah. And it will have an interesting little uh, conceit for, our, for you know for, for the way we structure our conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of conversation, I hope everyone will join the conversation. Don't forget that you can send your questions to us on the Facebook page. That thread will go up as soon as this episode goes up. And then also, of course, you can email them to us, closereadspodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget about the uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash closereads. You can support the show. Uh, it's how we pay our editors, pay uh, Tim and Heidi, and um, pay for the hosting of the uh, the podcast on on all the apps and everything and uh, that will also allow you to join the conversation as we discuss crime and punishment starting at the end of January so we are beginning to prep for that already so we are looking forward to that I guess that's it Tim another great another great book finished although next week we will answer questions but uh, man every time we finish a book little piece of you know I was gonna say a little I was trying to think of how the, mo- the most the most like dramatic way I could put it but I can't really think of anything right now. <laughs> <laughs> Little piece of the podcast life dies, and plants fa- see. Yeah, uh, right, right. Plant new podcast life.
0: Nice, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Way to go, David. We challenged
2: it. <laughs> well, Tim, we'll see you see you this weekend. So, looking forward to that. To everyone who's been listening, thanks so much. We really do appreciate uh, the conversation. Uh, appreciate your support, and uh, we appreciate you spreading the word. So. As Tim said at the top of the show, those reviews and those ratings really do help us out. So please, please, uh, please do that if you are an overcast listener or wherever you listen to podcasts. For Tim, for Heidi, for all of us here at the Post Reads Podcast Network, I'm
1: David Kern. Thanks so much for listening and happy reading.